pray, Lord, again, as we open your word, as we study it, that we would see the vastness of the love that you have for us. And so, Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you have sent us these love letters called your word. And, Father, they're designed to teach us and instruct us to grow us in the ways of, of righteousness. And so, Father, I pray that we would be receptive of your word, especially your word written so long ago. Make it pertinent to our lives today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you turn and greet your neighbor? Everybody's way back there tonight. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Second Kings chapter five, as we'll be looking at General Naaman. As you're turning there, just read, reread this morning's verse. We were in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, but I'm just going to read the first verse. It says, Now the faith is the substance or the confidence of things hoped for, the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. And really what we're going to do tonight is we're going to see it in this man named Amen, this man who at one point was a doubter, but then God did an amazing work. Just why? What did he do? He just simply did what God, through the prophet, told him to do. And and it always boils down to that. If we can just do what God tells us to do, we've got the supernatural power of God behind us. But so often we have such better ideas, at least we think we do, and it just brings us down a bad path. So, so far in the book of 2 Kings, we're in 2 Kings chapter 5, what we've seen is the prophet Elisha's ministry to two kings, to two women, and now one Gentile general. The prophet's word to the kings were, get right. To the two women, it was, get faith. And to this Gentile general, it's going to be, get healed. We're going to break chapter 5 down into four parts. First, we're going to see the Gentile's condition in verses 1 through 7. Secondly, we'll see the Gentile's cleansing, verse 8 through 14. Thirdly, the Gentile's conversion, verse 15 through 19. And then we'll see a believer's failure, verse 20 through 27. So first we'll be looking at the Gentile general's condition, starting at verse 1. Now, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. That's a, that's a big but there. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel." So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised when the letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? 
Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. He's thinking that he's got ulterior motives. So, the big part of the problem with the king is leprosy is incurable. And so Naaman has a disease that probably, more than likely, one day is going to take his life. Scripturally speaking, a lot of times leprosy is an outward sign of the sinful condition within us. It's just that picture. And so we'll follow along in those patterns. And so you've got this man, Naaman, General Naaman. He's powerful, he's honorable, and he's wealthy. He was a man who had all the world, all that the world could offer, that would be, he'd be considered a very successful man, very desirable man, at least for the king to have in a powerful position. And Syria is pretty close to the most powerful nation at this time. So if you have a man in the most powerful nation in the world and you have this powerful position, you're in a good place. But unfortunately for Naaman, the things that set him apart from everyone else could not set him apart from the great equalizer. We looked at this when we studied through the book of Ecclesiastes last year. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, it says, again, the preacher, he's looking at the human condition. He's looking at what men set their hearts to do. And if you recall, he comes to a great conclusion, the same great conclusion every time. And everything that man has set his heart to do, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And that idea is that there's no substance. There's no real lasting substance to what we do. And if the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, truly is Solomon, which more than likely is, he was the man who was the most richest man in the world. He was one of the most successful men in the world. But when it all boiled down to vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And then he even took it to the point of death. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, he says, So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this is also vanity, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does the wise man die? Just as the fool does. This is the fool does. I personally experienced that. I've mentioned this before. Most of you have heard it. But with my father, when we were in the hospital, father had cancer. He's, we knew this was coming. And there he is. And, and, and he's dying right before our eyes. And I'm looking at him laid out on that gurney. And he's having to lift his chest. He, he's in a, a, a coma at this time. But he's having to lift his chest to draw every breath. And as I'm watching him, I'm just thinking, this is the man who fathered me. This is the man who was very successful in business. He was very respected in his business, and he's just left here to die. I mean, if there was more people there, they would have pushed the fool right beside him. And there's just no difference at that point. And what we need to see is how everything just boils down to just that human life, void of all of the worldly accomplishments, what did you do with Christ? And that's the only thing that makes any difference whatsoever. Well, as far as Naaman, God's got his designs upon him. And even this leprosy is going to work together with God for the good. God's going to use it for the good. So in Jesus' day, it, we're told in, in, in John chapter 2, the last part, that the Lord knows the hearts of all men. And then we are introduced at the beginning of chapter 3 to this man, Nicodemus, and... 
Nicodemus was a picture of, uh, of the champion of, of humans. He, he was a good man. At least that's what he was considered to be. Well, Naaman was an example that the, the best of what the world has to offer as well. Problem, both of them are carriers of the same fatal disease, which we know is sin. Nicodemus's sin is seen in his evaluation by the Lord. Naaman's is seen as its outward expression of this leprosy. The cure is the same for both. You need to be born again. And it's, we see this as essential. It doesn't matter if you're rich. That's not going to get you into heaven. And we can look at that, but don't forget the other end of the spectrum. It doesn't matter if you're poor. That's not going to get you into heaven. We're, we're not Stoics and we're not Epicureans. We're, we're, we're people who have to see the reality and the necessity of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Your suffering here on earth buys you nothing up in heaven. The riches that you accumulated here on earth buys you absolutely nothing in heaven. It's all about what did you do with the Lord Jesus Christ when the gospel was presented to you. And so what is he to do? Well, again, verses 1 through 4. Now, amen, amen, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord, so God working through this Gentile general, had given him victory in Syria, or given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, well, we know this to be Elisha, and we'll see that in a little bit, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. In totality of this picture, we need to see it in light of Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. That's when Joseph's brothers were real concerned after their dad died what Joseph was going to do. He was in the most powerful position in the world, Joseph was at the time. And these are the brothers who earlier had sold them into slavery. But Joseph said, hey, that which you guys meant for evil, God has used it for good to save many alive today. And Joseph realized that, yeah, they had evil intent, but God used that. And so how could he punish them for what God, the work that God was doing, the greater work that God achieves? And there's a greater work here that's going on because it was necessary for Naaman to get leprosy to get God. But also, can you imagine, and, and really I'm looking at this little slave girl. I'm looking at this slave girl, and there's a whole lesson just right there in her. Just think of her. I would imagine she was probably in a border town in Israel, the northern kingdom. Syria is going in there and raiding them. They go into the village and they capture her and they take her prisoner and they take her back to Syria. Now, can you imagine what she's thinking? She's going, Where, where's God in all of this? How, how, how is this happening to me? Can you imagine the mindset of her parents and all of these things? But when there's an opportunity to witness, notice how she's still holding fast to her faith. She's still willing to direct people to God. Now, who's going to be one of the chief beneficiaries if this man comes to God? Well, it's going to be her because he's her master. But nonetheless, this woman, this young girl, continues to exercise faith. And so since Naaman would not know God, this man of the flesh, God sends someone who does, this little preacher girl. She's not afraid to share her faith. She's not afraid to show God as the one who is going to be the solution to his condition. Because ultimately we know not only does he need a physical healing, he also needs that spiritual healing. Verse 5, 
Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. When considering the king, I wonder if this is an act of compassion or a result of frustration. As far as compassion, I do not think that this king, this is Ben Haddad II, was a man of faith. Later on, we'll see that he ends up being an enemy of God. On top of that, I don't think he would act on the word of a simple slave girl. I mean, this girl was probably anywhere from 12 to 16, something like that. It's spoken of as a young girl. Um, and so it, it was more than likely just this act of compassion for this man who, who, who's his general and has done well for him. As far as frustration, I can see where he'd be frustrated if one of the best and brightest is about to die. So he's willing to try something, willing to do anything. This is the hardship of the human condition and the confusion that results in desperation, not knowing what to do. What do we do now? And those who are apart from Christ, what do we do now when sickness comes? I mean, what advice do you give them? What do we do now when, when disease comes? What, what advice do you really give? I mean, apart from turning to Christ, what advice do you really have for that person? The families, if you're able to approach the families of the 50 people who died recently, what advice, what, what words of comfort do you really have to give them? I mean, I don't know who's saved and who's not saved, but if they weren't in Christ, we've got absolutely nothing to, to give them. And so the, the, whole, the person that makes the greatest difference in this whole story is just this little simple slave girl. Now, being a young girl, she was probably you know, Jewish, but she was in the northern kingdom. And if you re remember, the northern kingdom wasn't walking right with the Lord. And I have to wonder, you know, when I see a young kid like that and a young kid that's glorifying God, I always wonder, I wonder who their parents are. Because apparently they did something right here. And the way you do something right in a child's life is give them Jesus. And, and she gave this child the, the opportunity for faith, and now we see faith come into fruition, and, and God's doing a work through this, and it's an amazing thing. God's doing a work in the king's heart, but really they're to that point, willing to try anything. So he does something that may or not benefit his favorite general, but nonetheless, got to try something. Well, he's going in a good direction. So, verse 6, Then Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened, or this is how the king reacted, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Syria is a pretty powerful nation. It's very possible that Israel was a vassal state. They were put under tribute. And now all of a sudden he's thinking that, well, this king is doing this just so when I can't heal this man, he's going to use it as an excuse to attack us. And so this king we know is a godless man. And being a godless man, he at this point just doesn't know what to do. And so when the slave girl spoke of a prophet in Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom, the king wrote to, and this is King Jehoram, thinking that either he would be the man who was able to heal or he would know. I mean, if the slave girl knew who this man was, you'd think for sure the king does. 
But Jehoram's reaction comes about because he doesn't know God's abilities. He doesn't know the prophet, nor does he know God's word, nor does he know God's healing abilities. He just doesn't know God. And so again, doing what the majority of the world does, what are we going to do with this guy with leprosy? I can't do anything, and I, I don't, I'm now all of a sudden I'm in a situation, the king would think, that I don't know what to do. Well, we need to understand this, that the church that does not, does, <laughs> the church that does not know God's word is just as inept as this king. If you don't know God's word, you're of no use to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way that we are of use to the Lord Jesus Christ is God's word. Without God's word, I'm a useless portion of this church. Without God's word, what is it that we take out into this world to offer them hope? What is it that we base our faith upon or a knowledge of God? Without God's word, we are completely inept and we are completely lost and we're dead in our sins. So we have to realize, and that's what we have to cling to as a church, as so many people, so many churches are fleeing from God's word, we have to stay rooted and grounded in God's word. Because if you don't have God's word, what are you going to replace it with? You're going to replace it with human knowledge and, or human opinion, whatever. And, and what is human knowledge or what is human opinion going to be able to do with people who are in desperate situations? This is an incurable disease, leprosy. And this man needs something, something supernatural to happen. Are you prepared? The Apostle Paul had an opportunity. A man came up to him and said, what do I need to do to be saved? And again, I challenged the church. I don't, maybe it was the men's um, Wednesday morning study. What if somebody came up to you and asked you, what, you know, I, I've heard about salvation and all. What do I need to do to be saved? When I was on staff at Calvary Chapel Chino Valley, I was on call one day, and the secretary said, hey, there's somebody here that's in for prayer. We all did our time to, you know, for walk-ins or people who would call for prayer. And so I went up front, and there was a young girl, and I say young girl, she was probably in her 20s, and sat down and said, how can I help you? I would like to get saved. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> I have to share with you for at least, I think there's a time limit, like 15, 20 minutes, then you can get saved. No, but what had happened was the day before, the Sunday before, she was at church, and she heard the message, and she did not respond to it at that point, although I think she probably did within her heart. And, and God was doing a work in her heart during that time where she was just, well, it, it was irresistible. She came into the church for the express purpose of giving her heart to the Lord. By the grace of God, I was prepared to share with her and lead her into the uh, saving knowledge of Christ. But what if somebody came up to you? They recognize you as a Christian. You've mentioned it to them before. Maybe you've shared a few verses with them. But are you prepared to give a gospel in a manner in which somebody is able to make a decision based upon it? If you are a Christian, it doesn't matter how long you are a Christian, but if you are a Christian, it's your responsibility to have the gospel prepared. I mean, not, you don't have to have all the details and all the theology and all of that, but you should be able to share the love of Christ in a manner in which they are able to make a decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the responsibility of the church. It's why we sit and study after study. Paul's in jail. Once again, him and Silas, I'm in Acts chapter 16, verse 25. He and Silas, they could be whining and complaining. 
We're out sharing the gospel, and look where it's gotten us. It's gotten us in prison. We've just been whipped, and now here we are. But that's not how it is. Verse 25, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Do you do that in the midst of your trials? Do you do that in the midst of your hardship? I mean, that's the, the, the physical example that we have on how believers handle hardship, handle trials and tribulation. And so they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. They're giving glory to God even in the midst of their trials. And the prisoners were listening to them. And that's a key. As, as they're glorifying God, people are listening. Or maybe I should say people are watching. Okay, there's a Christian so-and-so. I heard about that hardship. Let's see how they react. Because your faith is really going to be manifest as you're going through that hard time, as hardship hits your life. Verse 26, suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose. And the keeper of the prison awakened from the sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. The reason he was going to do that is, is because if a prisoner was under your care and he escaped, you were going to suffer the penalty that he was supposed to pay. And so it's very possible that there was men here who were going to suffer the death penalty, maybe even by torture, and so he just made the determination rather to go through all that just to kill himself, verse 28. But God, Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, that's an amazing testimony to what God is able to do. Part of it was Paul and Silas as they were praying and singing hymns. But that's not, the, that's not what's going to seal the deal. That's not the totality of their witnesses. Because what's key here is, is what follows in the next verse. Verse 31, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, so they told them what. Now they're going to tell them how. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. If you remove verse 32, then nothing happened but an earthquake and a prison guard didn't die or did die. That, that, that's all that happens. But they had to at some point speak the word of God. They shared the gospel with him and he was saved. Another thing is the blessing of how God meets us even in our ignorance. Look at Naaman. He's of the mindset. He's thinking along the lines of the world, and I'm sure the king as well. As a matter of fact, seems to be the king who sent him with these things. He's got all of these goodies because he's thinking he's going to be able to buy a blessing from God. The treasure that Naaman brought with him is estimated to be around $100,000. And so it's very substantial. He's not understanding the concept of grace, but nobody has shared the actual word of God with him. But what did that slave girl do? Again, we've got to keep this in mind. The prophet isn't one who speaks of the future necessarily. The prophet is one who speaks forth the word of God. And so what she has done is she has directed this man to the word of God. He doesn't understand the concept of receiving the word of God and the effects of the word of God by faith, but nonetheless, he's doing the best he can with what he's got. Secondly, we see the Gentile general's cleansing, verses 8 through 11. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, this is a sign of mourning, and he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? 
please let him come to me. Notice he already knows what's going on. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot. He stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over this place and heal the leprosy. And so he's trying to tell the prophet how to do it, how to work this miracle. And again, you've got to understand, this man is still going according to his understanding. So what is he doing? Well, first thing he's doing is he's standing at the door, but pride won't allow him to enter in. He's not a man who's used to humbling himself. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will heal your leprosy. He will lift you up. And so at this point, again, him standing there, he's gone a long way, but he's not willing to enter in. If he will not enter in, neither is the prophet going to exit. And I believe that's why Elisha did not come out to meet him. Jesus said in Matthew chapter eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How do you get rest? You have to come to him. At some point, you have to make the decision to act, to go, to be led by the leading of the Lord. You have to hear the word of God, but you have to respond to the word of God. There has to be a human reaction. It's the way God has set salvation before us. You cannot stand at the peripheral of the word of God and expect it to work in your life, especially if pride is present. So I can't get saved because I allow my wife to go to church. I can't be saved because I give money to the church. I can't stand at the peripheral. I have to enter in with a relationship with Jesus Christ based upon the word of God. But we do see an important Christian concept here. Although he didn't come in, although the prophet didn't go out, what did he do? Elisha sent a messenger to him. And it's the same thing that God does today. He sends messengers. And the thing about it is, you're the messenger. You're the, the, the world's not just going to come in here. We, we try to get them in. We're going to have a Hosanna night, a Halloween alternative, and try and get some in here and minister to them. VBS, that's all part of the process. But the main action of outreach is going to be God's people getting up out of church when it's over and walking out that door and bringing the gospel because that's where they're at. How do they stand at the door? They stand at the door in their mind wondering, they stand and wonder, but not enough to get past their worldly ways, because this is foolishness to the natural mind, to physically enter in. Now we get some in, obviously, but we have to be of the mindset that the world's out there and we have to bring the word to them. Who is God sending you to today with his message? Who has he impressed upon your heart? Romans ten fourteen. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed, and how should they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And the answer to these questions is they can't. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? They can't. How should they believe in him whom they have not heard? They can't. And how should they hear without a preacher? They won't. And, and so we've got to be that preacher that goes out and shares the word. So since they are not going to just come to us, we must go to them. That's why Jesus, what did he say in the Great Commission? Go. Go. He didn't say wait. He didn't say, just kick back and, and they'll come to you and I'll send them to you. Now, he does send them to us, but we've got to go. It's in the process of going. 
Again, verses 10 through 12. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman, now keep in mind, Naaman, he pro- he's heard of it, but he probably came in from the north of the Sea of Galilee. And so going to the Jordan is going to be out of his way. There's the Sea of Galilee right here. The Jordan comes out of the bottom. Syria's up above. So if you were coming into Israel, you wouldn't go past the, the, uh, the Jordan River. You'd have to go out of your way and then circle back up or come back and then go up. But Elijah sent a messenger saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman, it says, and Elijah, and the word of God, but Naaman. How, how many times have you but... Mike, but you, you know, God's gave you his word, but you had some sort of better idea. And how many times have you faced somebody else that had a better idea? Well, God's patient. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Verse 12. Are not the Abana and the Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. He's upset. Now, dipping in the Jordan River would be an act of faith. I have a slide here, if you could show the slide uh, presentation, people. That's the Jordan River. Would you go in that? I mean, if they told me to go dip in that, now, it's not, it's not just the film. I took that picture when we were in Israel. That's brown water. It's just, it's, there's a lot of sediment there, and there's a lot of dirt there. And so if, if you're a leper, I don't know if they realized it back in those days, but you had to keep those wounds clean. And to go dip in there, that's why he said, we've got better rivers than that. I mean, they're, they're, that's just a little, it looks like a, a mud hole. And that picture is taken from the area where Jesus Christ was baptized. And it's just kind of an amazing thing. Now, I don't know that it looks like that year-round, but nonetheless, you can imagine his mindset and where he's coming from. This would be about a 20-mile journey out of his way to a very dirty river. Probably had a reputation as such. That's why he responded how he did. But it's funny how this man who could do nothing for his condition offers what he thinks is a better solution. If you could grab him by the lapel and say, you haven't been able, your ideas just haven't worked. And again, you can say that to the people out there that you're ministering to. Look at the situation that it's gotten you into. Look at all of the problems and the issues as you've tried to connive and work your way out of circumstances, situations and circumstances. And and as all they've done is gotten the better of you. But you have to realize what is the Jordan River? What is it, a picture of here? It's a picture of the healing word of God. And it may seem like foolishness to the world. That may seem like foolishness to the world, but that's what God told him to do. And that's the bottom line. Don't evaluate that. And that's what we're all doing. That's why I saw the looks on your face. Don't evaluate that just on the surface. This is the will of God. Sometimes the will of God is going to look like a muddy river and you're going to think, what's up with that? But the fact of the matter is, we know it's God's will. Now, what are the rivers of Syria? Those are the inept words of man. Those are the words of mankind that could never do anything for anybody. Now, during the Apostle Paul's day, he's at Berea. Things aren't working well. Wherever Paul goes, there's either riot or revival. And he's been experiencing quite a few riots. 
So they, his handlers say, Paul, you need to get away. Go to Athens. Go there and wait. Don't cause any more riots. Don't get into any trouble. Just go there and wait. So Paul goes there, and he sees all of these altars that are dedicated to all of these gods. He sees the one to the unknown god. And really what it does is just vexes his heart that he can't keep his mouth closed. But what we see in that account in Acts chapter 17, we see to where human thought has led humanity. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all of their philosophies have been tried and really didn't do anything for the human condition. And so man, Greeks, were worshipers of human thought. And so they're looking for something that is going to make sense of it all. And as I've said so many times, really all philosophies of humanity, they they always let man down at the point of death. What, What do we want? We want something that is going to make sense of life, but how much more so that is going to make sense of death? And man has absolutely nothing apart from the gospel. And so you've got Paul, he goes into the marketplace and he sees this group of people. And again, what we really see is the foolishness of it all. In Acts chapter 17, verse 21, it says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners, so we have people coming from far and wide to gather this knowledge, for all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either tell or hear of some new thing. When you're looking for some new thing, it's more than likely not going to be a true thing. You're not going to be able, there's nothing new under the sun, the preacher said in Ecclesiastes. And so they're in the midst of the seed of human thought. They're looking for something new because something old hasn't worked. But the problem is there's nothing until this day when the Apostle Paul blows into town with the truth. Now, he had that opportunity to preach the gospel and people, not as many, but people did get saved. But what we see is this contrast between human thought and the gospel of God. Human thought just got him to this ridiculous point of just searching for something, never being able to find. Verses 13 through 14, we have this voice of reason. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Great feats of man have always hindered a humble submission to God's word. If you go out there into the world and you preach some amazing human accomplishment, If you're able to do this, if you're able to work that, you'd have people standing in line trying to do it. But if it's just something simple but doesn't compute with the human mind, works computes with the human mind, if you know what I'm saying here. That just makes sense because everything in this life I have to work for. I have to work hard. You work hard. You get a good education. You work hard. You'll do well for yourself. And we've taken that mindset into religion, our relationship with God. And so we're of that mindset But all of this is contrary to us. It's not about our works. It's about the works that God has accomplished. And so he's trying trying to, 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 to really shuffle this through in his mind. It's kind of like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again? Can I go back up into my mother's womb? Nicodemus is not understanding the spiritual thing. He's basically saying it makes no sense. The same thing with Naaman. 
So finally, Naaman, what does he do? He just does what the word of God told him to do in the first place. And what happens? He's healed. If you do what God says, then God will do what he said he was going to do. And so here's this point of faith. And that's all it is. By grace you've been saved through faith. Nicodemus had an opportunity to prove, I'm sorry, Naaman had an opportunity to prove his faith. And it had to, he's not up there anymore and that's okay, you don't need to put it back up. But he just had to dip into that water. Didn't make any sense, but that's where faith comes about. And so as he did it, he was healed. Now if he doesn't do it, or if he does it his way, he ends up dying in his disease. And then thirdly, the Gentile general's conversion. So if this Gentile general is truly converted, we should see a change. It's what we saw this morning. We saw those who profess faith, but we also saw those who practice faith. Anybody can profess faith, but true people of faith will practice their faith. There's going to be that outward expression of their faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verses 15 through 19, And he returned to the man of God, he and all of his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, this is Elisha, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Ramon, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. Six things that we see here that express the change heart of this man, the work that God's done. We have an outward expression of what God has done inward. And really what it's come about isn't a cleansed body so much, but a cleansed mind. First of all, he goes out of his way to speak of what God has done for him. In the first part of verse 15, and he returned to the man of God, he and all of his aides. He probably went about 20 miles out of his way because he needed to speak of what God has done. This man is excited about what the Lord's doing. Secondly, look at verse 15 again, second part, and came and stood before him. We see a changed heart of remorse. There's been a humbling. Remember before, he wouldn't stand before him. He wouldn't even come into the door. But now that he's understanding these things, he's understanding the greatness of God, he's now willing to stand before the man who is the presenter of the word of God. And he said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. He's confessing with his mouth his faith in the Lord. We looked at that this morning. At some point, you have to go on record to express the faith, express the work that God has done within your heart. Fourthly, he wanted to give a blessing and appreciation to how he was blessed. The last part of verse 15. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. He, he just wanted to do something for the God who has done something for him. And then fifthly, we see in verses 17 through 19, he wanted to go and he wanted to continue in his worship of the Lord. 
Now, as he wanted to continue in the worship of his Lord, and this brings us to a sixth point, he was concerned about that. Now, what we have here is, is a picture now of a baby Christian. It's undeniable that God has done something in his life because God has worked a miracle. Anytime you see anybody come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, God has worked a miracle in that person's life. Now, Elisha has the opportunity to become a legalist, but God's word is not legalistic. It always points us to the love and to the grace of God. He could have told them, don't even go into that place to worship that God. It'd be better if you died first. But that's not what he said. Now, he's understanding the immaturity of this man, and he never really gave him an okay. But what he did was, verse 19, then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. He put his conscience at rest because God put the man's conscience at rest. By grace, you have been saved. By grace, through faith. But as far as maintaining your salvation, we do not maintain our salvation by works. It's not by grace you've been saved and get busy because you've got to continue to work for it. It continues by faith. It continues by the grace of God. Now, is this man practicing idolatry? Well, that's the whole point. Idolatry is a matter of the heart. And what he wants the prophet to understand, and really he's asking for permission, that I just don't have that faith yet. I just don't have that kind of faith to be able to stand that boldly. And so, please, when when I'm commanded to go in there, as I'm in there, understand I'm not worshiping that false god. Understand that as I'm in there, I'm worshiping the God who, who truly is. And what God is doing through the prophet is just meeting this man where he is at. And so when people come in and they get saved, we don't need to be giving them the rules. We don't need to be giving them our convictions. We just need to continue to teach them the word of God. And then God is going to bring conviction. I don't know whatever happened to this man named Amen, but it's very possible that at some point he realized, I can't do this anymore because I don't see how he who's been forgiven of his sin can continue in his sin any longer. And so I don't know what happened, but one thing I do know that it happened, God met that man where he was at for the purpose of growing him in his faith. And so we can look down our noses at people like this, but we have to understand God is constant. He does the work at salvation, but then he does that work for sanctification. And it's a constant work that he's doing in all of our lives. If you're mature in the Lord, well, then praise God that you're further down the road in that work of sanctification, but never forget where you came from. Because if we forget where we come from, then we lose the necessary compassion to be able to minister to others. And then lastly, we'll just close with this last section. We have a Jewish man's corruption. This man, you have the man who has all the riches in the world, who has humbled himself, But now we have a man who is of the Lord, or at least is the assistant to Elisha. Now all of a sudden he gains an attraction for the world. But Gehazi, the servant, verse 20, but Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master, or look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. So that's his first problem. It wasn't Elisha that did that. It was God who did that. But as the Lord lives, and this is a sin, he's taking God's name in vain, I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? So we see this continued change of Naaman. He'd 
being a powerful general, having a slave come up to him, he probably normally would not have gotten down to meet him. Verse 22, and he said, all is well. My master has sent me saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. This is a lie. It didn't happen. So Naaman said, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags and two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants, and they carried them on ahead of him. When he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand. It wouldn't look good if he had Naaman's servants coming into the citadel with him, and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in and stood before his master Elisha. So God, we'll see, has already talked to Elisha's heart. Uh, his master, Elisha, said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant did not go anywhere. Then he said to him, Did not my heart go with you? And he's basically saying, Didn't you break my heart when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And as he went out from his presence, leprosus as white as snow. And so, really what you see here is, is Naaman, he humbled himself and he cleansed himself from the world. And God cleansed him of that leprosy. And now we see this young man, Gehazi, he all of a sudden has a desire for the world and he becomes infected by the world. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 through 11, Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Gehazi, there was the temptation. There's nothing wrong with being tempted. It's what you do with that temptation. He should have fled. But unfortunately, instead of fleeing from, he fled to. Notice when Elisha said, is this the time? God's got riches in store for us in the future. Don't settle for what the world has to offer. It's passing away. But God has all the riches and glory in Christ Jesus set before us. It's the great hope that we are so looking forward to. It's that which one day we'll realize from the hand of God. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, that you have given us your word. And your word, Father, is so pertinent for today. I pray, Father, that we would be a people who cling to it, who desire it, and rejoice in it. That, Father, we would understand the cleansing that we had received. And just as we saw, Naaman was to dip in the Jordan River. And as we saw a picture of it, it didn't make sense. Faith, grace through faith doesn't make sense either. But, Father, it's how you have chosen to work. It's how you have worked in our lives. It's how you'll work in the lives of others. And so, Father, once again, we just come to this place to honor you and to bless you, to prepare a life, Father, that is worthy of you. Father, I pray for those who have come out tonight that you would bless them, that you would go before them, Lord, that we would travel safely. And, Father, bring us back here our next service, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? I've been told to announce there is taco salad tonight in hospital.